The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this series of episodes, we continue a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians using proper hermeneutical and exegetical principles. Our goal is to understand not only the details of what was going on at the time it was written, but more importantly, to understand what it is saying to God's elect in the church today. The reason, as stated before, is that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that God's word says that the Bible is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in the righteousness. Again, this is because our presuppositional approach and our biblical worldview as God's saints is that God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, beauty, significance, and reality. Further, our assumption is that God has chosen to reveal himself 
and his attributes, his relationship to man, his plan of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and glorification via his Holy Spirit, who breathes God's revelation into his word, the Bible. Now, thus far, we have uh, done an introduction and made our way up to chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians. So far, what we've seen is we've seen a church which was founded by Paul, Silas, and Timothy in the city of Thessalonica, and that within a week to three weeks or so after having founded the church, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were forced out of the city by various peoples who did not appreciate what Paul and Silas and Timothy were doing in the city. As a result of uh, Paul preaching the gospel there and founding the city, they were eventually forced to uh, relocate to the city of Corinth, where within a year, Paul, Silas, and Timothy undertake to write this and then a second letter to the church to reassure and comfort the uh, Thessalonian saints who were enduring great persecution, trials, tribulation, imprisonment, and other sufferings there. We see that, in fact, the Thessalonians were a shining example, as Paul points out, to the surrounding communities and regions insofar as how the power of God was able to take peoples who were entrenched in pagan belief or in just pure atheism and to instill in them the Spirit of God which would bring to life a true and sincere Christian walk. If you'll open your copy of God's Word to chapter 2, verse 9, we'll pick up where we left off, where Paul says, For you recall, brothers and sisters, our labor and hardship. It was by working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, that we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Moving on to this episode, we open with verse 10, where Paul says, Ye are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly and rightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you believers. Verse 11, Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So, in verse 10 and 11, not only were Paul, Silas, and Timothy conducting themselves in a godly and righteous manner in the presence of the Thessalonians, but their motives were the same as that of a father exhorting their own children. We see that this authority, while it existed and was factual, it was ultimately selfless, and its motives were born out of love for the Thessalonians. Verse 12, So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So here we get an insight into Paul, Silas, and Timothy's motive, the final goal of which was that 
the Thessalonians, and indeed all whom God calls would walk worthy. It should be acknowledged that it is God who calls us to walk with him, just as God had called Paul. It is God who justifies us and imputes his worthiness to us. It is God who indwells us and sanctifies us progressively into the measure and stature of the worthiness of his Son, in whom he is well pleased. It is God who glorifies himself and his elect by his worthiness and by his grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. We bring empty hands, and by his grace we have a broken and contrite spirit and everlasting gratitude for what God has accomplished at every step of the way for us, which remains the sole contribution we can ever place on the table of eternity. Verse 13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of mere men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. Here, this verse confirms the fact that our ability to walk worthy lies at the doorstep of God's grace. We, like the Thessalonians, thank him that those who have received have done so. Tracing it back, we recognize that it is by God's grace, saw his sovereign will and purpose, they were able to receive and to believe and to accept. Verse 14 for you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So here, Paul is reminding the Thessalonians who were currently enduring sufferings, persecution, trials, imprisonment, and so forth, that they had become imitators of the churches of God in Christ throughout the entire region, who also likewise had endured the same sufferings at the hand of their countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. They were sharing the same ex common experience, which is due to all true Christians, which is to suffer for the sake of Christ, for the gospel, at the hands of those who were an antagonism to the gospel. It also points out that God's word is like spiritual seed. Once truly planted and watered, it will grow and always reproduces its own kind. The end resulting plant and fruit is a copy which imitates the DNA blueprint and the final result of the original. 
The offspring repeats the pattern and each successive plant is another copy of its predecessor. In the case of the church, we know that any given plant is a true and genuine plant, in part because like a parent plant, it suffers and endures persecution, suffering, pruning, and growth, as did the original. Verse 15, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all people. This verse, unfortunately and sadly, confirms the fact that historically it was a group of peoples, largely the Jews, who had become prideful and arrogant with regard to their own perceived self-righteousness and self-holiness, who had become so enamored of their own works and liturgy that they did not receive or perceive the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was their intended deliverer. As a result, they wound up crucifying the Lord and then driving out all those who were carrying his message as they had done previously to the prophets who had carried the word of the Lord to the children of Israel. This verse also confirms and memorializes that the persecution, suffering, and trials which were part of the world under the pangs of sin began with Adam and Eve and continued with the prophets, culminating with the Lord, and which continue until God throws Satan, sin, and death into the lake of fire. Verse 16, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved, with the result that they always reach the limit of their sins, but wrath has come upon them fully. Now again, this is referring to the Jews who not only had crucified Christ and who had killed the prophets as well as throwing out and persecuting those who carried the gospel, but they continued the process by hindering Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and other apostles and disciples from speaking to the Gentiles who were beginning to be converts to the message of the gospel. With regard to these people, Paul says that they, as a result, always reach the limit of their sins. This reminds us that from our perspective, sin, rebellion, evil, et al. often seem to go on indefinitely and oftentimes seem to outlive us. They also seem to gather strength and momentum and a hold on the majority of people to the point that by God's standard, any righteous, virtuous person would see that good is waning abandoned, or even lost. But from God's perspective, his eternal purpose, his sovereign decree and perfect will, God sets limits. God sets an appointed time which he has fixed when sin, rebellion, evil, etc. will be punished 
either in part in the short term or eliminated in whole and appointed his eternal wrath. The purpose of the interim wait, I believe, is twofold. One, as scripture says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all whom he has elected should come to repentance. This is not a universalistic, all without regard to any relationship without Christ, but rather the all is a sense of all of those whom God has appointed and elected to repentance. Secondly, the purpose of the interim wait is to store up righteous and just wrath for and against those who remain in sin and rebellion. This brings us to the second point in verse 16 where it says, but wrath has come upon them fully. In this case, God's wrath is a logical and justified wrath which is made necessary by God's nature of justice, righteousness, and holiness due to man's choice through Adam and Eve. God's wrath is balanced by God's nature of mercy, grace, and love, which is the only reason that although none deserve it, some, according to God's sovereign will, are saved from his wrath, given forgiveness, and imputed Christ's righteousness. The wrath here is so certain that Paul speaks of it as an accomplished fact in the past tense. Verse 17, But we, brothers and sisters, having been orphaned from you by absence for a short while, in person, not in spirit, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. So here Paul recalls the unfortunate circumstances and reality of verse 16 in that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had been separated from the Thessalonians due to the uh, persecution and hatred of the Jews and others who had in fact caused a sudden tearing away of Paul, Silas, and Timothy would seem like being orphaned in a physical sense. Though this was the case in the body, the physical sense, the spirit could not be contained or deterred, which although real, still caused a yearning desire to see the Thessalonian believers again. Verse 18 for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and Satan hindered us. This verse is a reminder that while Paul, Silas, and Timothy could blame the Jews or the Romans or the atheists or whoever who were in Thessalonica or other places who were causing them problems, they could blame the everyday challenges the obstacles and things which hinder us. However, circumstances and discernment reveal ultimately the reality that Satan is the author of such things which attempt to delay, 
to undermine or to stop God's plan. Clearly, God is in control. However, as in the case of Daniel in chapter 10, we see that spiritual warfare behind the scenes oftentimes takes its toll. Verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of pride in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Or is it not indeed you? This verse is a great and awesome reminder of something profound. We know that as Christians, we either wait to be reunited with our Lord and Savior through our physical death, or in fact, we wait patiently for the promise of his second coming, where we are transformed to not see death and to be with him. Either way, we will be with him in his presence and to, to experience the fullness of his joy. At the same time, every believer in Christ, by God's grace and power, will have the opportunity to plant, to bear witness, and to encourage other believers. The stewardship and our work which we participate in, both directly and indirectly, accrues to a heavenly bank account. Eventually, we reap dividends from that account at Christ's coming, which presently is our hope and joy, and later is our crown which we receive and lay at his feet since he is the one doing the work in us, through us, and with others. This then gives us purpose and meaning and endurance in the present, so that when times are tough, when we see the sufferings, the persecution, the trials, all those things, we have reason to continue, to move forward, to go into battle, and to be victorious in Christ. Verse 20, For you are our glory and joy. In this case, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that they are his, Silas's, and Timothy's glory and joy. Just so, each and every one of us who share the gospel and the good news of Christ and the encouragement have reason to give glory and joy for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. At this point, we move to chapter 3. Now, looking at the flow from chapter 2, it's actually apparent that at this point, there's an improper break of a new chapter and a new verse where there should not be one because verse 1 of chapter 3 continues to flow from verse 20 of chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, So, when we could bear it no longer, we decided to stay on in Athens alone. 
Clearly, this remark is made in light of the comments which are made in the preceding chapter in verses 18, 19, and 20, and so forth. In essence, what Paul is saying in verse 1 of chapter 3 is that at one point, their desire to be with and to be in the presence of the Thessalonians again was so strong that they could bear it no longer. And as a result, Paul and Silas make the decision to stay in Athens. And in verse 2, Paul says, We sent Timothy, our brother and fellow worker for God in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and to encourage you about your faith. So in essence, Timothy would be the one who would physically go see the Thessalonians and to reunite with them and to carry with them the hopes, the prayers, and the spiritual presence of Paul and Silas. Thus, the physical separation of Paul, Silas, and Timothy from the Thessalonians had reached its climax with Paul and his companions. Whatever persecutions, sufferings, trials, etc. were going on in Thessalonica, the information reaching Paul, Silas, and Timothy became so terrible to Paul's ears that because of their intense bond and spiritual love for the Thessalonian church, Paul, Silas, elected to stay alone in Athens while sending Timothy to Thessalonica to physically encourage, strengthen them by proxy. Is at this point that Timothy would, at some point or another, arrive in Thessalonica with the physical letter from Paul, which is entitled 1 Thessalonians, and would include everything that we have read up to this point and everything that we will be reading for the remainder of 1 Thessalonians. Verse 3, So that no one would be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Verse 3 gives us the primary reason that Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians, for the purpose that they would not be shaken they would not be deterred. They would not be adversely affected by the afflictions, the persecution, and the trials which they were currently enduring. And further, he gives them reminder that they knew, because Paul had at some point told them that they were destined for this. Paul continues the uh, thought in verse 4, saying, For in fact... When we were with you, we were telling you in advance that we would suffer affliction. And so it has happened, as you well know. Now, the question is here, why were Paul and others able to tell people in advance that they would suffer? The answer is that because Jesus himself predicted and warned all believers that this would be the case in John chapter 16, verse 33. Quote, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye have tribulation, 
but be of good courage, I have overcome the world, unquote. In other words, affliction and tribulation in general is the part of the Christian life, and nobody then or now should be surprised or alarmed because of it. The fact is that verse 3 and verse 4, along with many other places in Scripture, beg an uncomfortable observation. Namely, one does not have to look long or hard to find any number of people and places who confidently identify themselves as biblical Christians. These people and places, some of whom are famous, everyday names, who write books, conduct endless seminars and sermons, wherein they repeatedly tell us that Christians can have their best life now. Yes, and all we have to do is say a particular formalized prayer, think a certain way, name it and claim it with certitude that what we want is already ours, and voila, we have it. All we have to do is ask. In fact, in some cases, we are told that the reason we don't have the best life now is because we lack faith or because we are out of sorts with God. Worse yet, maybe we need to give more money to the church in order for God to finally reciprocate and give us what we want. But if any of this is true we have to ask why the Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy did not qualify for your best life now guarantee. Uh, Surely Jesus would have a mansion, a limousine, a seven-figure bank account, and a rock star following. Yes, and then we have the 11 disciples who followed Jesus, and despite being chosen by Jesus, each suffered beatings, persecution, detention, arrest, and ultimately martyrdom. Not one would wind up being a millionaire. Not one would wind up being on the Forbes 500 list. Or worse yet, you have Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Rahab, and others. Well, what's the common denominator with all these according to Hebrews 11? Was it health, wealth, prosperity, an abundant life here and now? Hmm. Oddly enough, the common fate of each according to verse 13 is, quote, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Hmm. How and by what means did those today who are claiming our best life now get to be so much smarter and wiser than all these? How did those who personally walked with Jesus miss what those who are separated by 2,000 years have supposedly found? Clearly, these questions are rhetorical. 
the correct biblical worldview is that from Genesis 3 until Revelation 21, we live in a fallen world where Satan, sin, the world, and the flesh seek to kill, to steal, and to rob us, and to ultimately cause as many as possible to be alienated from God. God is in the process of reconciling his chosen elect to himself and condemning Satan's sin and rebellion. Because of sin, we need to view life through the prism of anthropomorphic, egotistical concerns. We assume that God is here to serve us and that our ultimate creature comforts, our goals, our desires, are why God is sovereign. Instead, rightly understood, we are serving God. God is working all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. The $25,000 question is, who's good? The ultimate answer is God's good, his will, his plan. When it is said that God is working all things together, sometimes the things he is working together are the details of our lives. Sometimes the things we want and need are in harmony with the all things of his overall sovereign will and plan. Other times, God must change, repurpose, postpone, and deny our wants and our needs for the sake of our and or his greater purpose and will for all things as he determines good. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me again for the next episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.